Sari Martin Concepcion, and I'm the Director of Communications at Blueprint 1543. This podcast was recorded as part of the Theopsych Project, hosted by Blueprint 1543 and Fuller Seminary's Star Office. The conversations you'll hear on this episode were recorded in January 2020 at our second Theopsych seminar with two very different Christian scholars. But in their own ways, they're both looking at what forces are most responsible for forming us into the people we become. Timothy Baylor is interested in faith and hints at the fact that there might be qualities of faith that lead to greater degrees of flourishing as we identify with the story that Christianity tells. He's also interested in how to think of anxiety and how the experience of anxiety can threaten our ability to flourish. Check it out. All right, I'm here with Tim Baylor. Can you just tell us about yourself, where you teach, where you're from? Sure. Yeah, well, I'm originally from uh, the northeastern United States, uh, Pennsylvania, but I currently teach in the United Kingdom at the University of Wales in Lampeter. Nice. So you consider yourself a theologian? Yes. (laughs) I teach Christian theology and religion. Uh, So a lot of the stuff that I do is about the kind of uh, internal coherence of the Christian faith and its practices. So that's that's most of what my research is about. In the context that I'm teaching, most of the students who are taking my classes are taking them to try and figure out why Christians think the way they do. And mm-hmm. so my endeavor is more to try and give as rich of a description as I can of the kind of internal logic of Christian right. believing. So the different parts of Christian belief and practice logically and reasonably fit together and yeah. fleshing that out. Yeah, and what it's like to inhabit something like that. You know, what yeah. is how does that shape the way a person thinks and inhabits the world and the kinds of habits that they cultivate and the kinds of practices that they value. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's yeah, it's about how those beliefs and practices go together and the kind of shape that they give to life. Mm-hmm. My students would many of them would be familiar with a kind of religious studies approach that looks at religion as it were from the outside. So it's it's not it's not committing itself to any particular way of viewing the world, but is attempting to kind of look at the practices and beliefs of a religious worldview from the outside. But the way I, I kind of describe the difference between what I do in a kind of religious studies approach is to to use Anselm's phrase that theology is basically faith-seeking understanding. It's it's a way of faith trying to make sense of itself and the world around it the best that it can do. And so when I'm teaching my students, I'm trying to help them to think about, okay, if if we're committed to Christian faith, what are the principles of Christian faith and how would those principles give shape to the way we live in the world and the way that Mm -hmm. we understand it? And what are the especially unique points of, I guess because I come from studying here at Fuller, Mm. there is such a variety even in the Christian tradition of how to understand those different parts of the faith, Um, even from really important things like how you get saved and what is sanctification and all, all what happens after you die. Yes. Um, that you sort of go, okay, so what are some of the unifying things that we all have in common as we all identify as Christians? Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, Christian theology is a very broad 
discipline. This is something I always struggle with as a teacher is, you know, where do you, which thinkers do you expose your students to uh, that you take to be kind of representative of the best. Yeah, the best, the best that Christian the theology. The yes, exactly. That, that would really help them kind of get wrap their heads around the subject matter. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's that's tough to do because there is so much diversity in the Christian tradition. Yeah. My approach to that has generally to this point has been not to attempt to give them a comprehensive view, but to offer them what I would take to be a compelling version of that. So the reason I've done that is because one of the things that can happen really easily when you're bouncing around between different versions of the tradition is you can lose sight of how some of these pieces interlock with one another. One of the things I really attempt to do with my students, many of whom don't have much religious background, is to help them see how from within a faith a lot of these pieces fit together really closely, and it's not always clear how that's the case if if you're not inhabiting that tradition. And so instead of taking a kind of broad approach, I've tried to signal that in, in secondary readings, but in the classroom setting, tried to say, well, I'm going to give you a version of the Christian faith that I would take to be compelling uh, so that you can see how these bits kind of interlock together. Mm-hmm. And we can make that a, a, a way of moving ourselves forward and reasoning together about about whether this is a compelling vision of the Christian life. I mean, a lot of the work that I do is about our moral judgments, uh, our kind of moral intuitions, and the way we think about what is right and what is what the good life looks like shapes how uh, we think about the nature of God and God's works in the world. That's that's what a lot of my research is about. I'm really interested in the question of anxiety. I, I have people close to me, um, and I'm sure you'll have people close to you that have struggled really seriously with anxiety at, at different levels. And this is something that I have found that you know, from the church communities that I've inhabited, people handle sometimes really, really well and really, really poorly. I mean, the communities handle really, really well or really, really poorly. There can be a lack of understanding of this experience and it's com- it's becoming a more common one. And so I think churches are having to wrestle with this issue more frequently. But what really kind of motivates uh, my interest in the question is essentially what, how should we treat anxiety as an experience of a person living the Christian life? Uh, how should we think about the nature of anxiety, its appropriateness for a Christian and the conditions under which anxiety might be an appropriate response and the conditions under which it might not be an appropriate response. So that's a, those are tricky issues and they're difficult to talk about because there's a lot of people in our congregation. It's an urgent pastoral issue. Mm-hmm. But this is, this is kind of one of the areas that really motivates a lot of my research is how does, how does the experience of anxiety and the way that anxiety can shape a person's life how does that inform the way that we think about the nature of God and God's works in the world more generally? Uh, so one of the areas that I'm looking at in particular is the sorrows of Christ. When you read the gospel narratives, you see a Christ who is embedded in this context with relations to other people that are deeply personal and deeply intimate. He feels sorrow and sadness at the death of a friend in the garden, anticipating his and in crucifixion, he's overwhelmed with grief and sadness. So we see a, a vision of Christ that is that is deeply human in that sense. He's given to the, that kind of vulnerability. But on the other hand, is also, in, in a variety of different ways, the Gospels also present Jesus as a person who is 
courageous and who's living with tremendous faith and is confronting these uh, sources we might call it, of sadness or sorrow or anxiety. So uh, what I'm interested in is how does how do our judgments about what anxiety is and whether or not it's morally good or bad inform the way we understand the nature of Jesus and Jesus's human life? How, how do those two things shape one another? Yeah, and especially so we have this dissonance too where the, the Bible speaks pretty, you know, be anxious for nothing. Like we're, yeah. to- we're told, and a lot of times in the scripture if you hear like rejoice, you know, yes. it's like, Okay, you know, it's like you're commanding someone's emotional life, which some seems like not something you can control. You can't just switch that on and off. Yeah. So Yeah, this is a tricky issue because yeah. a lot of there there are the causes of a person's anxiety could be different, couldn't they? I mean, some people who struggle with things like chronic anxiety might I mean there may be long-term genetic or biological issues that are informing that struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people, environmental causes, right? People who have gone through a recent trauma and who are wrestling with that trauma even still. Um, people who have gone through recent changes like mm-hmm. uh, postpartum depression or something like that. So there, there can be a whole host of different causes for a person's anxiety. And you're right. The way that we appeal to some of these biblical passages can be really flat-footed and not take mm-hmm. into account the differences mm-hmm. in experience and circumstance that are really relevant in those cases. Um, that's been my experience. I know people who, in the church who have been wrestling with this who, yeah, they're told, well, be anxious for nothing. Why are you being anxious? And it, beca- mm-hmm. and it can become a real challenge to that person to, uh, is, am I sinning in doing this? Is right. this, um, is this right. a sin? Because I'm just not trusting God enough. <laughs> yeah, because I'm not trusting God enough. Yeah. Is that was that what's yeah. happening to me? Yeah. And flipping back to Jesus, what your project is is talking about, we often read into the Gospels. So we're reading a text, and it's not always clear the emotional power behind certain things that are said, right? Like, Jesus could be saying this with a smile on his face. Yeah. He could say it while laughing. He could say it heavy-handed and authoritatively yeah. or angrily or something. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, there's a human tendency to sometimes read into it what we think the optimal emotional delivery would be of whatever yeah. Jesus is saying or doing, but really we're bringing in our own um, cultural sensitivities to, to that, you know. Yeah. And then also our emotional regulation is influenced by our culture, right? So yeah. whatever culture we grew up in, whatever was normal and how to express sadness... Just you can respond to that. How are you? I think that's a really great point. Actually, is the way that we experience the appropriateness of sadness and sorrow is really culturally conditioned in a variety of different ways. I mean, when you read the New Testament, that's actually reflected in a lot of biblical interpretation because first-century philosophy around sadness differed wildly. I mean, you had people like the Stoics who thought to experience sadness or anxiety is a sign of a lack of wisdom, right? Because a person who is truly wise doesn't cling to things that can be taken from them. And so the wise man isn't one who's overwhelmed with sadness. That, that's not the mark of a wise man, that's the mark of a fool. Whereas you had other people like the Aristotelians who thought, well, no, there's, there, so, there's something good about sadness. Mourning the loss of something that is essential to our flourishing is something worth being sad about. Totally. So, there, yeah, there's a range of different views on that in the biblical text. And there's a range of views on that 
among Christians today, and I take many of those to be appropriate, what's interesting to me is the range of different options that are available and the the differences between contexts. Um, I, I think in the West, we have a tendency more and more to think about the need to affirm people's experiences of sorrow and sadness because we've recognized that there's been relatively little bandwidth to allow for this in our liturgy and our worship for people to express their sadness and their sorrow and to bring that to God mm-hmm. and to acknowledge the goodness of sadness. And I think that's appropriate. But there are also circumstances that are also pastorally urgent where calling people away from their sorrow is an important part of their flourishing. You know, the ability to, in certain contexts, lay your sadness and sorrow down and to, in, for example, forgive yourself mm-hmm. for, for some transgression in your past Mm -hmm. and to move forward is a necessary part of human flourishing too. So we can get in these uh, conversations sometimes where we're pitting the one against the other when in reality, both are necessary, but in their appropriate context. And the question is, well, when is that appropriate? Um, And then I just want to say, I mean, we're kind of switching back and forth between there's types of fear and anxiety that are the results of medical problems yes. and, yeah. like you said, trauma yes. and whatnot, and then just kind of the normal, everyday sadness that comes from circumstances, and yeah. sometimes there's needs to be a distinction, draw and discernment used is what's what, which is which. Yeah, um, I think so. that is. I think that's really key. Yeah, discerning the different causes of sorrow, anxiety. I mean, it's hard to address pastorally the issues of sorrow and anxiety when you really haven't thought much about the possible causes of them. And right. so you really, I think that that's a key component in any sufficient theology or pastoral care that's looking at this issue. You have to give some serious thought to that. Mm-hmm. In a context like ours, um, medical conditions like that ha- just have to be taken into consideration. There are such pressing importance, and there's so many people that that struggle with chronic anxiety and depression of, different, of varying mm-hmm. sorts that, yeah, you just can't ignore that that kind of issue. Mm-hmm. But there are also larger environmental considerations that we rarely give any attention to. I mean, mm-hmm. the the busyness that we all have in our lives. So many of us are just running ourselves ragged for work or for our careers or for mm-hmm. our families and, and pulled in a bunch of different ways. And that can take a toll on us. That can mm-hmm. fill us with anxiety in, in ways that really inhibit our growth as people. And so... It's a tricky thing trying to yeah, use discernment to figure out what's appropriate in different contexts. But I think that's part of the process of, of thinking theologically and trying to follow the Spirit in this, in this dimension of the Christian life. Mm-hmm. So have any psychological insights stood out to you this week in signaling where your research might go next? Yeah. Yeah, there has. I mean, a lot of the things that Justin has talked about in some of his sessions have been really valuable. I think some of the elements of cognitive behavioral therapy that they've talked about will be valuable in my research going forward. One of the other issues that has been really interesting to me is the question of how we pathologize different versions of, of anxiety or sorrow. Sadness, we generally acknowledge as, well, that's a universal human emotion experience that's very natural uh, to, to us to feel that. But some people tend to think of anxiety as just simply a pathology. And there, there may be good reasons for doing that, but there may be good reasons for not doing that too. So uh, one of the benefits, I think, of a session or some, some of the sessions that we've had here has been to complicate that idea of 
how do we name what might be vicious about the, the experience of anxiety, the way that it might cling to us, um, and, and versions of anxiety that might be appropriate versus versions that might not be. So uh, Justin's been really enormously helpful with that, and I'm, I'm grateful to have been able to be a part of it. Up next is Natalia Mirandiuk. Natalia does the work of re-examining the ways that Christian theology has traditionally thought about what it means to be a human being. This area of study is sometimes called theological anthropology, if you ever want to impress somebody at a cocktail party by knowing that phrase. Uh, In her first book, Natalia wrote about God's love, mediated through our closest relationships. She believes that it's these attachment loves, as she sometimes calls them, form us into the people we become. And the healthier these attachment loves are, the more we're enabled to love everybody, to love our neighbors more broadly. It's a really cool idea. One more note before hearing from Natalia. She uses the term soteriology a couple times. And if you're not familiar with that term, it just has to do with the area of Christian theology that talks about what salvation is, how it works and what it means. All right, check out my conversation with Natalia. So I was born and raised in Romania, and I came to the United States as an undergraduate student on a very generous scholarship based on my SAT score. So I was very privileged to uh, have access to university education here. And at that time, I was studying economics in Romania out of fear of poverty, because (laughs) (laughs) having grown up uh, behind the Iron Curtain, where everyone was relatively poor and some more poor than others. I come from a pretty economically challenged family. I was always afraid of that. So I thought that that would be a way to be able to pursue the sorts of things that I loved to Mm -hmm. read and write. Mm usually the sorts of things that I had access to and I enjoyed reading about and writing so on were... practical if you learn about money, then well, you, if I, you'll be no, okay and have money. And no, not so much. More to have a stable employment mm-hmm. and having that stable employment, mm-hmm. uh, I would have time the rest of the day to read philosophy mm-hmm. and literature and mm-hmm. about religion and mm-hmm. write about those things. Okay. Well, when I came to the U.S., I actually continued to study economics. I was in the middle of the undergraduate program, so I thought I should finish what I started. Um, and I hadn't yet shifted my paradigm entirely. I was bombarded with so much newness in the U.S. It took a while to change mm-hmm. um, from one thing to another. But I was in um, an honors program that was conceived so that uh, in addition to other um, accomplishments one would have to have, like grades and so forth, it was conceived to have extra courses in religion and philosophy. So it actually opened my mind to see how that could be studied academically, particularly because in my former background, right in the in, in before I came to the United States in Romania, religion was forbidden. Mm-hmm. Nobody could study it. Mm-hmm. it. I mean, churches would have you know Sunday schools and so forth, mm-hmm. but one could not study it academically. It did not exist among mm-hmm. the rosters of disciplines anywhere in the mm-hmm. country. Well, after the regime changed and communists fell, uh, it was different. But I did not grow up after the change. Did um, your family 
have a value that any that spirituality or religion was important? Not my parents, okay. uh, my grandparents. So I was raised in the Anabaptist uh, church, mm-hmm. halfway in, halfway out, mm-hmm. because my grandparents were members, uh, but my parents did not go to church when I grew up. Okay. Uh, so I was at the margins of ecclesial life, and I think that was a gift mm-hmm. because I could see inside without mm-hmm. being part of some of the trappings that were ongoing, particularly during the communist regime, mm-hmm. uh, while receiving the benefits of the care of the church and having a vista of what was going on inside by yeah. not being at the core of it. So I I, I think it was a good experience overall. So uh, I don't think there was ever a time when I struggled with my faith or wondering whether God is there or any of that, those sorts of big questions of that sort, at least. I don't think I always felt the love of God, but still, I think it was there in seed and uh, it just grew gradually. So I never really struggled with this. I had other struggles, maybe with the kindness of humans, but not with the love of God. So, uh, so once you're in the U.S., you're introduced to the idea of theology. So the when academy. I was in the U.S., that's right, I was introduced to theology in the academy, and it became immediately an addition to the other two disciplines I was highly interested in, literature and philosophy. Uh, so it became clear to me that academically I love theology, philosophy, and literature. Mm-hmm. And I already knew that at some point later I was going to choose which one I was going to pursue more in depth. But for the time being, way back then, I knew I had to finish getting a degree and putting bread on the table, because that's the background I came from, <laughs> while having the intellectual life, which was a sine qua non, as integral to it somehow. Well. I graduated and I worked as an economist for a year and I realized that in the capitalist economy of the U.S., one cannot have both. One cannot have (laughs) the job of an economist and the flourishing life of an intellectual. There isn't physical time for both. Plus, I couldn't possibly be interested in the way in which economics was practiced where I worked and probably most anywhere else. I worked as part of the executive team of a, of a global financial holding company and the level of greed and the level of the bottom line yeah. in terms of profit and in terms of perpetual growth, that seems to me so, so wrong-headed and mm-hmm. futile. And so... That was soul-destroying. Uh, <laughs> soul very much, very much. <laughs> yeah. so, sim- so simply put, uh, out of... That background came, I guess, a time of personal, not crisis, but discernment, like intense discernment. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay, I have to turn my back to this. What do I do? What do I choose? Yeah. And long story short, I chose theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I went through a bit of a discernment, discernment time and I realized, okay, I really am interested in theology, theological sorts of questions and the study of religion, scientific study of religion of sorts, and particularly systematic and constructive theology. That's what I really wanted to pursue. Uh, I realized I love that more than philosophy and more than literature. And also, I realized that if I pursue this, I literally turn my back to my fears and embrace what I love. 
mm-hmm. and that was to me the conversion, mm-hmm. kind of an intellectual conversion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I never turned my back to it again, mm-hmm. uh, or I never, you know, had any doubts thereafter. Mm-hmm. I applied to initially the master's program at Yale University, mm-hmm. and then a PhD program there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was very uh, privileged to be accepted into those programs, and I got quite good training. And so that's how it started. And now where are you teaching? I teach at SMU, Perkins School of Theology for now. And I teach systematic and constructive feminist theology. So Brad Strong, we heard him talk about a personal kind of controlling question. Do you have a question like that or a research interest in particular that you feel keeps coming up and driving your research? Not one. Mm-hmm. No, it's not quite that way. But it's more I have a cluster of questions in mind. And also I work at one large project at a time with a glimpse of what's the next one and perhaps mm-hmm. what's the following one and a few others that are floating about in my mind that I think that I will probably pursue them later. But I have clarity about what I'm working on now and what is likely to be the next. And I feel that it's kind of opening up. So, for example, I wrote my first book on theological anthropology and specifically um, a contemporary feminist construction of human subjectivity through human and divine relations of love. And I made an argument with the help of uh, a number of different sources, including some contemporary feminist theory and uh, theology. For example, I used among theologians the work of Catherine Keller, among theorists the work of Judith Butler, together with some existentialist literature, the work of Soren Kierkegaard, and cultural theorists and some philosophy of culture, the work of Charles Taylor. I also used, polemically, the work of Augustine and a number of others to ultimately make the case that human existence is not simply being alive, of course, but our subjectivity is uh, shaped by our experiences of love. Mm -hmm. And our experiences of love are permeated by the larger flow of divine love that is directed toward us, which was the way in which I construed the argument theologically. Mm-hmm. So that gave me a framework to work on my second book. I'm working on it, which is a book on soteriology. And I'm mm-hmm. going to use the same framework of human and divine loves to think of what is salvific. And my argument is that human loves are part and parcel of what is the salvific becoming of mm-hmm. life. And specifically how that leads not simply to what we call salvation, but also human thriving. And basically, it's an argument for the role of the experience of love in human thriving and how that counts as salvific. Is there something you're arguing against in that argument? Is there a corrective you're offering the academy at large or the church or what is it or an emphasis that you're arguing against? Yes, um, at least two, probably more, but at least two. So one thing that I would um, argue against is the idea that salvation is relegated to the afterlife. Basically, I'm looking at uh, salvation in terms of human well-being as we know human existence uh, here and now. So that's one thing that I'm, yeah. I guess, resisting. Yeah. <laughs> the one classic account of salvation understood only above and beyond human mm-hmm. life. And then another would be... So 
salvation understood in and, in and of uh, itself, like an, an, an end in itself. And I'm looking at it actually as uh, a means toward human fulfillment, human thriving, human, human flourishing. So you must have encountered the call towards uh, interdisciplinary inquiry pretty quickly, in doing right. that, especially in talking about human love. So can you talk about moving into that territory and your journey with psychological sciences a little bit? Right. So uh, as I asked about the experience of love in our constitution as agents, selves, subjects, and now how can that be understood in terms of healing our brokenness and maximizing our uh, well-being? I did, of course, and I do ask, what does that mean in terms of the contribution to understanding the, this phenomenon through uh, the psychological sciences? What does it mean to talk about love psychologically? In order to figure that out <laughs> to some degree, mm-hmm. I turned to particularly to attachment theory mm-hmm. uh, and the neuroscience associated with attachment theory. In my first book, I have a chapter on attachment theory, and I have actually been fascinated by the way in which psychology can contribute greatly to understanding uh, the way in which Uh, our relations, but not just relations writ large, Mm -hmm. but relations uh, that bring us close to each other and relations that bond us to each other are making or breaking what we are. Yeah. So I call that attachment love in some of the work I've done, Mm -hmm. uh, different from perhaps the way in which theologians have described for a very long time our duty and practice of loving our neighbor universally. Mm -hmm. So I distinguish between universal neighbor love in the global world that is anyone Mm -hmm. and the way in which our attachments function. Mm -hmm. And my argument in the book that I have written, uh, we'll see how I develop it here in the second book and further, but uh, mm-hmm. in the book that I have written, I argue that it is our attachment loves that form uh, a home for our existence out of which we can love our neighbor universally. Mm-hmm. Neighbor love alone would be insufficient to form us as properly functioning human beings. Did you catch that? She said we are shaped by our experiences of love and our experiences of love are permeated by a larger flow of divine love directed at us. There's a lot to think about in that statement. For more on the concept of attachment theory, check out our resources from Dr. Mary Clements, who talks about the psychology of attachment, especially in her talk, Relationships as a Revelation. Thanks for listening.